Good morning. Good to be back with you. Our scripture this morning is from the ninth chapter of John. I'll be reading verses 13 through 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this scripture. And God, it is a a testimony to the fact that when people's religious views are challenged or their cultural views are challenged, God, by the work of the gospel, Lord, people can react in a variety of ways. Lord, some of those ways is to reject anything that they're uncomfortable with or anything that, that goes against their personal grain, like these Pharisees and these religious leaders. But Lord, we also know that your ability to open blind eyes to see is legendary. And Lord, we also know that you open ears to hear. And God, that's our prayer this morning as 
we see these words with our eyes and we hear the interpretation of them through Pastor Mike's message, that we would be open with ears, with eyes, and with hearts to receive the words that you bring through Pastor Mike, who he himself is open in spirit to be led by you as he is each and every time he comes to preach. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I want to give you an update on last week first. Last week I stood before you at this service and at all the services this morning and told about uh, Ryan Nelson, an optometrist here in town that had gone through a horrible physical situation. I told you about all the miracles that were happening in him from two weeks ago until now. Friday I went down to visit Ryan and I ended up carrying his stuff out so he could go home from the hospital. Glory to God, huh? Amen. Yeah. And uh, if you can, go on his... uh, site because the thing that's really neat and exciting about that is he says I don't know why I was picked I don't know why God did this and that's one of the things we always wonder is why does God pick this one and that one we don't know that but I'll tell you what he'll be using that as a testimony and and, and shout out to God secondly and I, I'm sure that was, this was said at the beginning of our hour but I, I wasn't quite here yet uh, I was in the other service still but I do remind you that we are a worshiping community that reaches out to the world around us um, we just had a group that went to Haiti. They're going to give testimony to uh, their trip tonight and how it might impact and influence our ministry going forward. Um, I'm excited to, to hear about that, so come back tonight. And also, I'm going to give props to Jason Alt right here in the front row. Wave, Jason. Jason wrote this musical that our puppets did for uh, the 1914 trip to the Mission Day yesterday. How many of you were there? Raise your hands if you were at that. Yeah, lots of you. Okay, great. It was fabulous. It was an outstanding, great theology. It told us, um, get up and do something for Christ's sake. And that's what we're all about. So well done and kudos uh, to to puppets uh, for pulling that off because they did a good job, uh, Jason. Um, So let's go right into the teaching this morning because if that wasn't our teaching... I have some that's ancillary to it. I got a buddy named Skip, and uh, Skip is uh, a pastor in the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Methodist Church, and uh, he came, and uh, he and I were friends, and we were meeting this winter. We were together in the, in the Rockies a little bit, and he was talking to me about his father-in-law. He was coming up on his 35th wedding anniversary, and I said, well, um, so how's that go, Skip? He says, oh, Mike, he says... You know, I was an outdoorsman. He was an outdoorsman when he was coming up, but hiking and skiing outdoorsman, not sit in a tree and shoot guns kind of outdoorsman. And, and he says, you know, I met this guy, and that's all he did was hunt and fish. And, and Belinda, his wife, this wonderful woman, said, Skip, you got to get to know my dad. And so Skip tried a couple times, and finally he said, well, to his father-in-law-to-be, he says, do you want me to go hunting with you someday? And he says, so I did. And we sat in a tree. You deer hunters know what I'm talking about. He sat in a tree, and you know, you're kind of tied to it, so you don't fall asleep. I'm tied in a tr- I'm sitting in a tree. I'm tied to a tree, sitting next to my father-in-law. I can't talk, and he has a gun. All right. And, and he said we sat there for two hours, and he said all I was doing was trying not to do anything wrong to throw a deer off or whatever. And finally, I I looked over him to him and I said, I said, Don, is this a test? And he says, Mike, I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me and he says, Skip. Between you and me, from now on, everything's a test. 
And that's kind of how life is sometimes, isn't it? I was talking to one of our members that had received Christ a few years ago. We were downstairs uh, around the powerhouse meal. And, and he was telling me all the great things that had happened and how God had changed his life and everything. And he says, but here's the thing, Pastor Mike. He says, since I've come into a relationship with Christ and since I've known there's a better way and since I'm finding this fulfillment in, in, in my life, here's the thing. From now on, everything seems to be a test. Everything out there seems to be testing my faith. Everything. And, and that's the way Christianity is. When we know Christ, there's a guy named David Platt. Maybe some of you have read his book, Radical. He, he writes something that's a double negative, so I'm going to put it on the screen, but listen to this. There's never a time in the faith of a Christian, there's never a time the faith of a Christian is not being tested. So I'll, I'll put that positive. The faith of a Christian is always being tested. The faith of a Christian is always being tested. Your, your worldview is tested? I, I was just sitting in a... In, in a you know, a waiting room for a car place the other day. And they started talking about this guy, Jared from Subway. And I didn't really follow all the news reports, but he's done some heinous things, you know, with kids and admitted to it. And of course, so the guys, it was all guys in the waiting room are talking about what should happen next to Jared. You know, and your guttural humanity says, well, maybe, you know, if you take him up to the cliff and kind of give him a little... Maybe that's the right treatment. Maybe letting him be in a certain cell block, in a certain prison, in a certain place. Maybe just letting him have the guys. Maybe that's the right thing, but 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 doesn't seem like that's a Christian worldview. And so there was a couple of us in this conversation that, that, that were talking. You know, some were just saying, oh, just let him go to the dogs. So there was a few saying, yeah, but what, what, is, you know, what, what does God have to do with that? I mean, how do you offer someone, how do you heal these kids? And how do you offer someone grace? that obviously needs grace. When that's not your instinct. When that's not your instinct, there's a test going on. Our faith's always being tested. Think about the behavior tests that you come up against all the time. We had a friend, a uh, member of our church last week, they went down to Corville to, to boat. You know, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I don't know if you remember it. They were out there boating, wanted to sun themselves, swim, and play with some of the toys that they have, you know, ski. But after going to one end of the reservoir where they were going to kind of do all this, there was this family just, you know, waving, waving, waving. So obviously they figured, all these other boats, nobody's going over there. So they went over there and said, man, we've been trying to flag somebody down for an hour and a half. And nobody would come, not park rangers anyway. And, and then they said this, they're probably just a bunch of conservative Christians. Which incidentally, my friend is. Your friend is. And they didn't say nothing. They said, can we help you? Yeah, you know, this, that, a bunch of boat stuff. I mean, I know you boat owners, two, two favorite days when they buy the boat and the second day when you sell the boat. I know that. I get that. Those are your favorite days. But this was in between that time. So our friend Chris hooks up his boat to this other boat. And because of everything that's going on, it took him two hours to tow it across the reservoir to the marina. And the people in the boat's vocabulary went from pretty anti-nobody helping him, them to when they pulled up to the dock we praise God for you coming along. God must be making you do this. See, that's a test. Because here's what I know about Chris and Kim's day. They didn't really get to sun themselves. It was dark, you know, getting dark. They didn't get to ride their, you know, toys and stuff around. They didn't get to do what they went to do. Because the test was put in front of them saying, are you going to help somebody that needs help? Every word we say, every thought we have, every action that comes upon us, it's a time in which we're being tested. And our question is, what, what do you do 
when your faith is tested? Because there's a lot of different ways to do this. I'm going to really lay out three today. What, What do you do when your faith is tested? A lot of people get litigious right off the bat. They get litigious, they go all lawyer on it, and they say, well, you know what I'm doing? It doesn't specifically say in the Bible that you're not supposed to go to these places on your iPhone. Well, it doesn't specifically say that, because first of all, it wasn't created, but you know, when you go litigious on whatever, when you go all litigious when your faith's being tested, really what you're doing, honest, let's be honest, You're actually looking for ways not to be faithful. You're looking for a loophole. You know, it's kind of like, you know, during your taxes when people are saying, well, let's find a way not to pay it. When when, when you have a faith test in front of you and you go all litigious, what you're really looking to do is to find a way not to be faithful, but to feel okay about yourself. Well, it doesn't say exactly, I can't do this. Yeah, but you know, you know. What do you do is your faith, when your faith is tested? Some people shrivel. They just shrivel. You know, the, the, the test is about some issue of the day, you know, something that's out in the news all the time, that's some emotional thing in families or this and that. They say, whoa, that temperature is way too hot. So I'm just going to kind of shrivel back. I'm just going to step back from this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all Christian quiet on you. I'm going to put myself in a little box. I'm going I'm to step away from that. And I'm going to seek the corner of what I call quiet personal faith. I'm just going to be over here, you know, being a sunbeam for Jesus because he loves me. I'm going to be in my personal thing, but, I, but this is too hot. I don't want to encroach on someone. Now, now, a little word of warning. It's hard to have a personal faith in, Christian, in Christianity because we're a social faith. We're meant to be, it's meant to be communicated. As a matter of fact, if you really look at the disciples and Jesus, they proclaim a very aggressive faith. Go into every corner of the world and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and make disciples of them. That is not a quiet personal faith. Keep it to yourself. You know you're blessed. Keep it to yourself. That's not what happens. That's not what Christianity. But so many people, when their faith is tested, they say, well, you know, I'm just, it's a personal faith and my personal, you know, I shouldn't get into their stuff. And we, and we shrivel. We sink back. What do you do when your faith is tested? A lot of people stand. A lot of people stand right in their faith. They, they believe in what it says in Proverbs chapter 3 where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your strength. Lean not on your own understandings, but trust all of your outcomes to be in part of his plan. Trust what's happening in your life. If you put yourself into, in, into God's hands, trust him for the outcomes. And fear, and this is what I fear, and, and those of you that have been in, in, with me in ministry and with me in, in Christianity for the last dozen years or so, and, and those that have been on my staff know that this is my only fear. My only fear about standing fast in the faith is that fear that like every other human being ever, I have the inclination to be faithless. I have the inclination when a crisis comes up to say, I think I can fix this. Or or when someone comes aggressively toward me, I say, well, I think I can fight this off. No, no, no. Stand with Christ. Stand with Christ. What do you do when your faith is tested? That's what this story in John chapter 9 is all about. What do you do when your faith is tested? It's, It's rhetorical maybe here because, you know, you're in a faced forward atmosphere. But it's not rhetorical at 9.30. What do you do when your faith is tested? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You know this one. Look what it says about faith. Faith is the confidence 
that what we hope for will actually happen. Think about that. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things that we cannot see. I'll give you a for instance. Someone might say, well, do, do, do I believe that Taylor will come to church today? I don't have to believe that Taylor will come to church because I can see her right there. I don't have to hope for that. I can see it. It's truth. But whether others that she knows, I have to have faith. I have to hope that they will come to church this morning. Faith is hoping for those, is confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance of those things that we cannot see. A person that trusts and is completely faithful to God is loyal to him. Now, please, please, please never quote me or Pastor Keith or Vicki as saying, you came to church and we told you to have blind faith. We do not encourage anyone to have blind faith. I do encourage you to trust the evidence, though, to examine the evidence and trust it. Look at the evidences of God in creation. Look at the evidences of God in human history. Look at the, the evidences of God that you see all around you in the lives that are, are about you. I mean, I look in the scriptures, and then I look at the cultures beyond them, and I say, there are plenty of evidences of God. Someone might say, oh, the story of, of Moses taking people out of Egypt, it, it, that's all hokum, that's just mythology. Well, let me tell you this. Look at the history of the world then. There was a time when Israel was captive in Egypt... And then shortly after that, there was a time when they were free and out and they had all the stuff of the Egyptians with them and there'd been no war. Trust the evidence of God. My evidence is they took all the stuff, they walked through the lake and they were free because by God's strong hand. But those evidence is enough. If that's not enough, then then understand that once there was this huge cult of the prophet Baal, of the god Baal, B-A-A-L. You've read about it maybe in the Old Testament. Well, there were thousands and thousands of people that ascribed to this, but there was a moment in time when they went up against one prophet. This is history, too. It's in 1 Kings, but it's also in the history of, of, of the Jews. It's also in the history of Mesopotamia and all that sort of thing, where one prophet named Elijah, you know the story, went up against them. They killed all the other prophets that ran with Elijah. And so Elijah said, okay, let's decide once and for all whether Baal is God or the one true God is God. That, See how that's kind of loaded? Let's see if the one true God is God or some guy you made up and carved into a piece of wood. Let's see what happens. So he says, let's make a test. How about you make a big fire with lots of logs on it and, or, or ready for a fire and you put a bull on it, chop it up, and then you dance around it and you pray for God or whatever it is you bail people do. And, and, and if Baal is God, he'll consume that bull and the fire and all that kind of stuff. And, and so they start dancing around and Elijah, the prophet who represents the one true God stands back and said, maybe your God's not hearing you. You should cry louder. And they cry loud. Maybe your God is on vacation. You, maybe he's in the bathroom. That's one of my favorite new versions. Maybe he's relieving himself. And and, and, and they make, they cut themselves and all like that. And after six hours of that, Elijah says, you know what? My bull's ready. Why don't you guys pour a couple hundred gallons of water on it? Which is great fire starter, right? Boy Scouts. And then they said, God, you are the one true God. And whoosh, 
That thing consumes and completely is consumed. And all the prophets of Baal are in that day exterminated. And you don't hear much about the religion of Baal today anymore, do you? Now, trust the evidence. We don't even have to look at the evidence of the New Testament to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. I would encourage you to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the stories therein and the, and, the, and, and the proclamations of him later in the New Testament. But if you look at the history of the Jews, if you look at Josephus Flavius' works, if you look at the history of that age, they all prescribe to the fact that roughly between 29 and 33 in the, in, the, in the period of time that we call A.D., which, you know, history is marked by Jesus' life, incidentally, Okay, which should be kind of a good evidence, you know, A.D., year of the Lord, Arnold Domino, okay? But, but in, in this particular period of time, it was told that Jesus was killed by the Jews, by the Romans, in Jerusalem. He died, and a couple days later, they couldn't find where he was. Now, everybody was looking for him. That's all you'd have to do to disprove the whole movement, right? Is find a body. That, that's pretty simple stuff. Nobody could find him, but everybody, over 500 people reported seeing him alive after the fact. I'm not asking you to have blind faith. I'm asking you to trust the evidence. And then on Pentecost, 50 days later, not in some far removed place from Jerusalem where a bunch of people went over there and said, hey, we kind of got a hold on this gig and we can make a lot of money and we can have this false religion. We can get started. We get a bunch of... No, but right in Jerusalem where Jesus was killed, the Holy Spirit came and thousands were added to the number of disciples that day. You don't have to have blind faith. You have to have faith that trusts the evidence and understand that faith gives us assurance about the things that we cannot see. See, the faithful discern that their hope is correctly placed. That's one of the things that you all did in your theological discovery during your life. That's what I did during my theological discovery. It's somewhere in my life. And maybe you and I tried a bunch of different other things, a bunch of other things, but somewhere in our life we said, all right, every piece of evidence I have in my life points to the fact that God is the one true God and I'll completely trust him. And the faithful trust God completely in the tests of lives. So let's look at the scripture. We have a few minutes for that. In John chapter 9, there's three responses to the question, What do you do when your faith is tested? The Pharisees go completely litigious. They go completely litigious. They completely resist in faith that which they can clearly see. I mean, they are seeing a guy that was blind, and now he can see, and they're resisting it. Now, before I let you off the hook, the lay people of the the Pharisee cult knew the laws too. The Pharisees didn't necessarily go looking for this guy. Some lay folks saw him walking around. They said, hey, I think that guy got sight. You know, the guy that's 30, he couldn't ever see before. You know, that guy that was around there all the time begging. I think he got his sight back on, on Sabbath. There's got to be something wrong with that because you're not supposed to be doing that. They kind of overlooked the fact that he was blind 30 years. Now he can see. That had been kind of where I'd lean into. But they said, you know, there's something wrong. Let's take him to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees get a hold of him. And they say, you know, it is wrong to heal somebody like that on the Sabbath. You can put mud packs on people's eyes any other day, but the Talmud said you cannot do that on a Sabbath. And the law is everything to their worldview. The law is what they care about. Faith and righteousness come through them. And so they have this huge problem. And the problem is readily identified when you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. So it's clear that no one can be made right 
with God by trying to keep the law. All the Pharisees want to do is say, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. For Scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. You see, Pharisee, the Pharisees in this story that Keith read just a few moments ago are entirely missing the point of the activity of God. God is active right in front of him, and they completely are missing the point. The law is not opposed to faith. It's supposed to help us see value in the life of faith. And God's point is completely missed because here's the object of faith. The object of the Jewish faith is the Messiah. And here the Messiah, Jesus, is standing right in front of him. Right in front of him. And they completely miss him. And they want to litigate. They want to litigate, not believe. So the sighted become the sightless. I mean, really, who's blind here? Who's blind here? It's the Pharisees, right? They completely have the object of faith in front of them. And they don't see it. Second, a second response to what do you do when your faith is tested, as I said earlier, is to shrivel. The healed man's parents absolutely shrivel. Okay, just imagine this. This kid is 30 years old. That's not a child. All of their life. They didn't have the kind of assets we have in our culture and society today. All of their life they had prayed for and hoped for their son to be sighted. Because he had to depend on others for the entire rest. He had to depend on the goodness of others for the rest of his life because he could not see that which he could not pick up a craft. He couldn't do anything because he was unable. And so here, their life dream, their whole life dream, their son has sight. It's played out right before them. And they shrivel. They shrivel in the fear of the Pharisees, in the fear of the moment. They shrivel. They say, well, he's our son. And he didn't see before. All of his life he's not been able to see. And, and now he sees, but, but we don't know how it happened. We weren't there. But you know, he's old enough. He's right over there. Go ask him. They, they saw what they saw, but because they were under fears, as the scriptures say, of being kicked out of the synagogue, their knees, the knees of their faith buckle and they shrivel away. They just shrivel away. Isaiah 7, 9 says this. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, unless your faith, and hear this, Christian, unless your faith is firm, this is God speaking, I cannot make you stand firm. Unless you come into it with a firm faith, I can't make you stand, stand firm. If you normally shrivel and you're not ready to stand firm, you'll shrivel again. See, the faith of the parents was weakened and they retreated to the quiet corner, to the quiet corner of personal faith. They had a son who had been blind, and now he had sight. And they're going to leave that unproclaimed and unexpressed for as far as they can see. I've got to believe that their hearts are alive with joy, but their minds are shackled by fear of the Pharisees. So what do you do when your faith is tested? Let's take the blind man as our example. The man that's once blind but now sighted stands and keeps standing regardless of the pressure they put on him. He keeps standing regardless of what the Pharisees come after him with. He explained what happened. Look, he put mud on my eyes. 
I went over, I watched him, and when I came back, I could see. And then he listens to the debate. He listens to the debate of the Pharisees, half of which saying, you know, he might be a saint. He might be our guy. And the other saying, no, he's a sinner. He's steeped in sin. And then they say, what do you think to the guy who'd been blind? He says, well, I think he must be a prophet. And they said, why? And he, he stands and he, and, he, and he explains to them again what happened. And, and he kind of gets one of the classic snarky lines in the gospel. Were you reading this? Were you paying attention? It was funny. Some of you laughed. A couple of people laughed at 745 when, when, the, when the man says to the Pharisees, now, mind you, why, why are you asking? Do you want to become his disciples too? That, in Christian lore, that is hilarious. Because what he's doing is he's putting it right back on them and he's putting with the fear of death back on them. He is unafraid. He's unapologetic. He's unashamed that Jesus Christ is his Lord. And so they push him farther. They're done kind of with the argument, and they said, listen, give God the glory, tell the truth. And at some level in his mind, I'm sure he said, well, I didn't know we were at that point, but okay. Give God the glory, tell the truth. So then he stands in front of the Pharisees, in front of the big shots of his town, and he says, listen, I was, and now I am. I could not, now I can. I wasn't a complete person, and now I am. I wasn't able to take care of myself, and now I am. I could not see, and now I can. And only God can do that. He's saying it right to him. He doesn't care what the problem is. Only God can open my eyes. In 1 Peter, we see where he, where he gets his strength. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. He trusted God completely. This man is from God, he says, and I stand with him regardless of anything else. Regardless of what happens to me, because I was and now I am. Praise the Lord. So what do you do? What do you do when your faith is tested? Do you, do you get litigious? Do, do you shrivel? Or do you stand, this is kind of a Baptist sermon. I'm giving you the same sermon three times. I don't know if you're paying attention. So given that, you can say amen or any encouragement you want at any time along the way. Otherwise, we'll do like the Baptist. We'll take two offerings. All right. Don't act like I don't know how to do it. Obviously, you know what I'm prescribing. The believer stands for God when our faith is tested. And I'm going to give you four quick things. And then we're going to take that prophesied offering. Four quick things. The believer stands for God when our faith is tested. The first way you stand is you understand the reality in which you stand. Don't go eyes closed. Don't go blindly. Understand clearly where you stand. And this is where you stand in 2015. You stand in North America in a post-Christian world. No longer are we going to see, you know, the tenets of faith pushed out from some governmental agency. We're in the era when you wake up and look at the Saturday morning paper and say, this veteran's memorial that has a cross in it needs to get the heck out of the public square. Did you read that? That's the era in which we live. And that's in Iowa, being brought to us by from someone from someone in Iowa, okay? 
So we live in a post-Christian era. We've got to get the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. We've got to do all this kind of stuff because faith somehow is supposed to be separate from life. And I am saying to you, in the post-Christian age, you can never separate or compartmentalize your faith differently from all the rest of your life. And so you stand in a post-Christian age in which our faith will be tested and it will actually at times be violently opposed. The tests are not likely, they're inevitable. If you're not being tested, it's because someone doesn't think your faith is strong enough to test you. If you're not being tested, it probably means that your faith is not strong enough for anyone to give any time to even bother testing you. Because marginalized Christians are going to move away. Now here's the thing about the post-Christian age that is exciting to me. From, that is just absolutely exciting. You know, okay, you guys are Americans. When the stock market goes down, what do you do? No, don't say panic. You guys never heard the expression, buy low, sell high? Is my microphone on? Because they, they don't seem to understand where we're at. Okay, when the stock market goes down, the wise investor buys. When the culture turns its back on Christianity and says we're in a past Christian age, that is a great opportunity for Christians. It is a great opportunity for those who are willing to say, I stand because I am different than the culture in which I live in, and there is hope in where I stand, and there is faith in where I stand, and there is assurance that good things are coming where I stand, and I'm not going to shrink or shirk that which is coming at me, because when we stand and we have this gospel-centered multiplication principle of saying, this is our opportunity to grow as a church, not shrink as a church, we can be culture-like and shrink, or we can be against the culture and say, we're not going to try to be like the culture, we're trying to influence the culture for Christ, then our opportunities to grow because people are looking for people like you. People are looking for people like you to come alongside. Don't shrivel into that corner and keep it to yourself. This is not the moment for this. Christ isn't going to die. He'll be okay with or without, but we will not. We will not. From the moment you believe until the day you walk into the great beyond, Everything's a test. The believer stands for God when our faith is tested. We understand the reality in which we stand and we trust God. I find an awful lot of Christians that are trying to manage this battle by themselves. Man, we're just foot soldiers. Just do what we're told. And the scriptures tells us what we're supposed to do. And the spirit tells us what we're supposed to do. But the battle is the Lord's. It's already won. It's already won. I mean, we've been talking through the Gospel of John for eight months now. And the Gospel of John begins with, before you ever were, before anything was, here I am, God. And after everything that you see is, and after you are, here I am, God. So there is nothing that can defeat God. He's undefeated in all time. There's not even a foe that is equal to him. If you look at the, the scriptures, and I do, you'll see that when God's people get in a battle, God really doesn't spend a lot of time on it. He says, you know, fellas, what you want to do is, you want to grab that ark with four of you, just walk out in front of the, just walk out in front of the, the army. They walk out in front of the army, and the rest of the people, their, their, their foes just drop dead. And God doesn't have to work. It's not like he's in a battle. He says, well, I'm kind of... Let's be done with that. The battle's the Lord. It's already won. He's undefeated in all time. And so the believer needs to trust. 
And the believer needs to prepare yourself. You need to prepare yourself. You know, I apologize, not really. I, but this is going to be stuff you've all heard before. I had a friend, Roy Hildebrand, lost 60 pounds once. I said, Roy, what's the key to losing 60 pounds? He says, it's really easy, Mike. Start fat. <laughs> you know, that's where you got to start. I, I said, but well, how'd you do it? And he says, okay, listen carefully. Write this down. This, we're in his living room. He's talking. He's, he says, write this down. I get a piece of paper. Like he's going to tell me some incantation, some formula. He says, here's what it is. Write this down. Eat less, exercise more. And, no, no, eat less. Exercise more. Faith is as simple as that. Don't make it hard. You have heard from this pulpit and others like it in every Sunday school class and Wednesday night class and Monday and Thursday night class, every Alpha class, wherever you've been, you've heard this. Lean into these three things. Lean into fervent prayer. Make sure your prayers aren't shallow. Yeah, we say, because it's part of our lingo, God bless us or God bless our friends. Well, that's all God was planning to do anyway. So drive deeper. We say, God, please be with my daughter. God didn't ever plan to be anywhere but with your daughter. God is always with us. God is always blessing us. So go to that next level. Go to that next level in prayer. Make your prayers with fervency. Get down on your face spiritually or physically and pray for, for, for the strength to live in this world, to, for the witness to, to not shrivel, to, to not be litigious and get out of the things of faith, but pray and pray hard. Secondly, lean into the Word. Don't let the only moments that you hear the Bible be in this room. We have them on our iPads, our cell phones. We have copies of things in our hands. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's yours. Take it with you. I mean that. We buy them so that people will take them and give them to their friends or you can take one home. So, so get into prayer. Get into the Word and trust then in the fellowship of believers. Don't be a Christian by yourself. Get in a small group in the church. Get into class in the group. Get in a UMW circle. Be part of 412. But get with a group of other believers so that you can be strengthened and your strength can grow. Because I'll tell you what, the witness of another is powerful medicine to you when you're going through a, a test of faith. And lastly, stand fast and give the glory to God. You need to decide long before you need to stand up that you're going to stand up for Christ. I have a friend, he was in the earlier service. His daughter's a, I think she's a sophomore, maybe a junior at college at Iowa State. And so anybody who's got parents that are parents, you know right now, this is the time when everybody's moving around, their school's starting. His daughter called him last week and said, hey, dad, can you help me move this couch I bought? He's like, yeah, of course, he's here. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. He had some stuff he was planning to do. She said, dad, can you help? Said, you know, there's 23,000 people at the campus you're at, honey, and half of them are stronger men than I am, so... And you're cute, so, but he, he didn't go that far. He said, okay, where's the couch? Now, she's in, she's in Ames. Well, the couch is in southwest Des Moines. So he says, okay. And he goes to get the couch. And then he takes it up to Ames. And then they walk it up, you know, those dormitory or apartment steps. And they get it there. And she says, thanks, Dad. And he says, can I buy her dinner? And she says, no, I got to go. So he spent six of his hours doing that. And I'll tell you this, because I know this about parenting, and it's the same about discipleship. If he had waited until she called last Sunday to decide 
that he was going to help her like that, he'd have never gone. Because there was something better to do, and I don't even know what it was. But the fact of the matter is, somewhere when he was changing a diaper or singing that kid a lullaby or dragging her to Sunday school or confirmation in this church, he thought to himself, I will help this kid whatever it takes. And our discipleship should be magnified in that way times maybe a million. You need to stand long before your test comes that you're going to stand for God. If you wait for the moment to come, if you wait for the challenge to come, it's going to be way too hard, way too convenient, and you won't be strengthened to do it. Your intentions need to become your actions. You need to stand fast no matter what the test. So when the believer stands for God, we do these four things. We understand the reality which we're standing. We trust the reality. We trust God. We prepare ourselves for the test. And we stand fast no matter what the test. Give glory to God, the Pharisees say, to the man that was once blind, now sighted. Give glory to God. Tell your truth. That's all I'm asking you to do. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God bless you. Take a look at this video. My kids love to come here. Emily loves 412. Um, I love to worship. Great. Um, Theo loves his friends here. We've met some really great families here. I really want to support um, something that I believe in. Um, that's a place of refuge and comfort and support for my family and in the community. My name is Joy Meese, and these are the reasons why we support Marian Methodist. Would you please join us in worshiping God this way? Would the ushers please come forward? <laughs> 